2: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmeier. My guest for episode 202 is Richard Lloyd, famously of the band Television, where he formed a two-guitar juggernaut with Tom Verlaine from 1973 through 1978, releasing two albums plus a reunion album in 1991, and he continued to play live with them through the late aughts. You're right now hearing Venus from Television's first album, Marquee Moon, 1977, Richard has also released seven solo albums. We'll discuss So Sad from his most recent 2018's The Countdown, then Glurp from Radiant Monkey 2007, Pleading from Field of Fire 1985, and Misty Eyes from Alchemy 1980. We'll conclude by listening to May This Be Love, a Jimi Hendrix cover from his album of Jimi Hendrix covers, The Jamie Nevert's Story 2009. In addition to this activity, Richard has backed Matthew Sweet, most notably on his most famous Girlfriend album. He later backed John Doe of X. He was the guitarist in the reformed version of A Rocket from the Tomb, a seminal punk band featuring folks who then went on to form Pear Ubu and the Dead Boys. And he's been a producer and has written a book, Everything is Combustible, detailing his time with television and his early solo career. Learn more at richardlloyd.com. Learn more about this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and support our efforts at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you my detailed episode notes along with an ad-free feed. I will play a little bit of Venus from Marky Moon by television from 1977 just to, to orient folks. We're going to get pretty quickly to your solo stuff. Can we sum up kind of how the thing that you're famous for relates to this very spread out project of releasing you know a solo album and then waiting a while and releasing another one in in terms of where you're at now in your career
1: i'm a live act at the moment i don't have a current record that i'm promoting and i'm not sure when we're going to get back into the studio for that most of my solo records are out of print i might have a few copies here or there but that's basically it. And uh, the rest are pretty difficult to get although You can get them on Amazon, you know, eBay, stuff like that.
2: Yeah, we got Alchemy, Field of Fire, the live album, Cover Doesn't Matter, Radiant Monkey, the Jimi Hendrix one, and The Countdown. In any case, The Countdown is the, the most recent one. And I also had just gotten through your book, which seems like we're just promoting the book just as much as the album here. Everything is combustible. From around the same time? What was the publication around 2000, 2018 also? Yes. Were those produced in tandem, or the book was much longer in coming, or what? No, the book took about a year and a
1: half to write. And I did it with a voice recognition software, so I didn't actually
2: type anything. Nice. That's amazing that it's so accurate at this point. <laughs> you could get away with that.
1: I started with uh, one that wasn't very accurate, Dragon Naturally Speaking 4, and now it's like Dragon Naturally Speaking 14, and it's much better. You can speak 120 words a minute, and it will do a very good job of writing it down for you. I mean, you've got homonyms, which
2: sometimes present problems. Well, I'll confess that I started reading it, and then I realized I was talking to you in five days or whatever, and I switched to the audio version, which is still you reading it, so it's actually better. That's, That's me reading it. I saw in there you were dwelling a lot. I guess this is what the audiences will be interested in in your early days with television and why that broke up and all this stuff. I'm interested in a little more. I mean, we'll get back to there. We'll we'll work our way backwards, but into where you're at, not right now. As you said, you're just doing live stuff, but as of The Countdown, your last solo record, we're about to hear So Sad, the the track I picked off of that. Can you sum up sort of where you're at with this album at this point? Was this a band you'd been, touring with? Was this a one-off thing that you just put together for the recording? These are
1: Nashville people. It's a Nashville record. Mm. So it's all new people. I, I would have picked a different drummer, to be honest with you. but The bass player's fantastic. And it had a co-producer who's now deceased. There were some issues there.
2: Yeah, any comments before we hear the song? So sad about this track in particular.
1: It should have had more lyrics, but... Uh, I'm hobbled in the lyric department.
3: same Coming down Strange enough That both roads lead to the same ground So sad
2: You're opening this, da 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 When do you hit, run across a riff and say, yeah, this is actually a song. This is not just a, because it's, it's a very nice, simple, effective, I mean, was that what started the song? Was jamming that? Or, or had you written lyrics down? Or what's the order of operations here, do you recall?
1: No, the other part of the guitar, the guitar main riff.
2: So that offbeat thing. beat
1: staggered chords and triads that was where it came from it's kind of instrumental doing that i thought well
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense because yeah then having the simpler you know it's basically a bass part although you're playing it with your full chords there having that offset the uh, the jagged thing
1: the thing is there was this guy who was a musician but he couldn't leave his house he was well known but he i was going to put the, a band together with another quite well-known Ray Manzarek of The Doors. And this guy was pegged as the singer, but we couldn't get him to rehearsals or anything. That was sad. It was so sad, you know, to live in on that kind of a space where you can't leave your house. Agoraphobia, I guess it is.
2: Well, it's funny you bring up The Doors there, that this baseline. Sounds like you know. I was thinking, "Writers on the Storm." It's obviously it's not the same tempo or anything, but it's a similar sort of dwelling on one chord kind of thing. Oh,
1: well, thank you. I was just listening to uh, "The End" by The Doors and thinking, you know, why can't I play guitar like that? You know, really soft, deep, penetrating, without aggression. Very interesting work he does on that song.
2: Is it the what amp and guitar you happen to be using that sort of partly determines? how much distortion you feel like you need. You know, you got some nice, beefy solos in this song. Right.
1: No, it was all a matter of what amps we had and pedals, and I didn't end up using much in the way of pedals. Pretty
2: clean record. Well, this one, yeah, because it's got that choppy, you know, almost talking heads-like thing. With that, the fact that you end these lines with the da 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 like you put in a little triplet thing. As you're going into the chorus, which the drummer doesn't seem to be aware that you're doing that, like so. So sometimes, you know, you're doing that, and he's just playing a fill through, and you know, it it definitely sounds like you know you haven't necessarily been touring with these guys or something, you know. That
1: offhand, I can't remember which drummer that was. Of the possibility of like two or three of them.
2: Well, I also like. So it's so sad, but you know, it's not a, a a maudlin sad. I had Chris Stamey on recently. He likes really slow, sad songs. But no, this has got a little pep to it. It's just right. depressing. You know, that's, that's the way depression feels to me. It's like, it's a grind, but it's not like one that stops me. It's just, uh. I see. Uh. <laughs> it's the uh. And, and not incompatible with some nice guitar soloing, with, with a little aggression in there.
1: Some people have the blues, but we got the eyes.
2: Uh, another day, chugging along. Yeah, well,
1: I like every day. Every day is an
2: opportunity to breathe. Well, that's good to hear. You know, I was heading up as he was heading down. That Your book presents quite clearly that, uh, yes, there were some bad times, some times where opportunities were squandered. or
1: That's a sad fact that my career has had many ups and downs and you know i blow it every time but i I haven't in a in a number of years now that i've put my sights on playing out live it's gotten a lot better and my mental health is all stabilized now
2: you're still here you're not gene clark you're not you know the many other people who had had chances at greatness and then didn't get over the hump
1: well, it's a matter of the initial, it's like a pool table. You know, you hit the white ball and the white ball hits the other balls and they all scatter and they go down in holes or whatever. But that initial crack of the balls hitting each other is very much like the impulse that I felt from rock and roll mm-hmm. when I first was first hearing it. And it was just, well, I have to do that. Or... I was trying to figure out what made the Beatles so popular 4 guys singing love songs. What's so unique about that? But then they had the electric guitars and a couple of years in and it was there was a I think 65 was a year where a whole bunch of records came out where the guitar took center stage as a lead instrument, a vocal instrument in solos and stuff. And that was what intrigued me. Have you seen um Fantasia oh yeah, and the mouse had Mickey Mouse has a broom as his uh, sorcerer's wand to me I, it was very clear that the guitar was in in the same realm as a magic wand
2: well i I thought you were extending the metaphor of the uh the initial pool ball to the process that gets started in that video of. Once you make the broom come alive, then it overruns the place. It takes on a life of its own.
1: Then you're you're bipolar, manic depression, that
2: frustrating mess. That's actually the one Hendrix song that I've done live. I really (laughs) love that one.
1: It's got great rhythm. It's in like 3-4 or something.
2: Let me play uh, a little of the solo here. It needs to be thick enough to be like that voice, like you were talking about. I was thinking Neil Young-esque. Sure. You know, like a... Oh, yeah, this whole song is very Neil Young-esque, yeah.
1: Legato notes and uh, a little staccato filaments, but mostly
2: legato. And then you come back to it at the end... I wanted to get to that high part where you sort of reach a plateau. This was clearly just a jammed solo, right? Is this different every time you play this?
1: I have touchstone notes and phrases that I, you know, have in the solo. So it's not completely uh, throw something on the wall and see if it sticks. I'm actually trying to develop a classic solo in the sense of, I can't say, not perfect. There is no such thing as perfect, but. You know, highly melodic, memorable, even if you can't sing it, it's another voice.
2: So in your book, so many of the bands that I, you know, were staples of my growing up, the Cars, the Talking Heads, are mentioned specifically as things that were mentioned as like versions of television, At least Tom Verlaine was saying, "Ah, oh, oh, the cars are on the same label as us. Now they have a pop version of television and now they'll never pay attention to us again. And you present that as if that was the last straw that he just like was And L.A. Easton has that exact. Every solo has to like sound like a vocal melody.
1: Yeah, it's true. The person that signed them was the same person that signed me to the alchemy record for electric. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of bands that you could listen to and say, well, that sounds like television's influenced them strongly, or I hear it. Tom was more acutely sensitive to that, people taking his M.O. and taking it to the bank.
2: The thing I'd heard most referred to, this is sort of a band that I've spent more time reading about people praising it than I had actually listening to to the albums I'd heard them at least all, all at least once. But you mentioned the song Venus that we started with. That a lot of the guitar interaction there, sort of, it's known as being a dual guitar band. But it was actually just you overdubbing yourself on that particular song because he's singing. So yeah, if there's a very you know spazzy guitar part, it has to be you. He can't.
1: He's playing just simple rhythm, very well done. He was a great rhythm guitar player, absolute genius at playing rhythm. And he could drive a rhythm for, you know, half an hour without tiring. It was quite marvelous. Unless you were on the high wire while it was going on, and you couldn't get down, couldn't get off. But,
2: yeah. Well, let's, let's tie that back to, before we get on to the second song here to So Sad and the current work. I mean, in, I hear in some of your solo stuff, you have guitars interacting in nice orchestral sorts of ways. Seems by this point... The last couple albums just have much more, I, I guess, the fact that they are on either side of this uh, Hendrix covers album that I feel like that that is reflected that it's a, a more blues based single guitar hero thing as opposed to some, you know, little clockwork pieces fitting together, which I hear more on the right. earlier stuff. OK, of yours. gotcha. Is that just because you're a live act and there's only one of you? Is that is that the reason? At the moment, yeah. Okay. Are you even playing with a second guitarist when you're live now?
1: No, what happened was we were going out as a four-piece and became untenable to take the bass player any further. And so we decided to let go of him and then switched over the second guitarist to bass. And that was a fellow named David Leonard. He's been with me for 35 years playing second guitar and stuff. Anyway, we put him on bass, and we fulfilled our obligations as a trio. And then he didn't want to continue that, playing bass. And there was some hardship involved and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I hired a new guy, and we're going out as a trio, which is fine because I get to Modify my parts is without worrying about stepping on anybody's toes.
2: Well, let's get the second song out here, which is "Glurp" from Radiant Monkey two thousand seven. I picked this specifically because I think it sounds more like the previous album before this one, as opposed to some of the other. I think the song right after this on Radiant Monkey sounds like a you know a Keith Richards kind of thing. It, it has very Stonesy blue, but this is a nice little tight orchestrated pop song with at least three guitars going through the whole thing. Any thoughts about where you were at with this song? This was the single I saw.
1: The rule of thumb was that there would never be any more than three guitars on a piece and mostly two.
2: You could cheat with the solo at least though in a recording setting. Obviously, live, somebody's got to, you know, you got to switch over and play the solo. But if you're recording, like, well, just have everything continue doing what they're doing and then you can, (laughs) I think that's what happened on this one. Let's play it here. Just that you have, you know, single guitar and then doubled. It almost sounds like a 12 string, but I think it's probably just two guitars and then have a rhythm underneath a melody. And, and yeah, it's just a lot in even in that little intro packed in there.
1: Right. The jangleness. I'm very fond of that song. It was written in commemoration of September 11th, air flight crashes. The idea came from the sound of a plane that went down in Pennsylvania, where they probably wrenched the controls back and were fighting over it and saved either the, the senate or the white house pretty firmly anyway the last thing you're going to hear some pilot in a circumstance like that is a sort of stifled swallow
2: i want to sneak into inside the heart of a little bird he's flying and he never falls is that that's a, a 9-11 reference
1: Well, these are all the things that you would have wanted, you might have wanted to do had you not been, you know, in that great disaster.
2: That's amazing. I did not hear because, you know, it just sounds like since, you know, I want to do all these things to to show my love as if I'm so bursting with love. I want to. That's what prompts many a dance, happy, (laughs) explosive pop song.
1: I'm happy if people take it that way, but that's not how it was written. It was written as a uh, homage to these souls that uh, went down.
2: Because on my interpretation, I was a little confused then. You know, I want to do all these things and and she wants me to know she's ready to roll. If only I promise this to take her down slow. And you sort of like, it gets a little sad. I don't know. You know, it's kind of stops with a minor key thing. And then on the subsequent courses, it sort of continues that, which seemed a little apart from I'm the happiest man in the world because I love you, which is the way I was interpreting this.
1: Oh, it doesn't mean that at all, that's sure.
2: <laughs> Any thought on the rhythm section of this? This is this is a very tight... I was going to ask about it in, in So Sad because there's some places where the drums are, are nicely unrestrained. I actually really like them. But this one, it's a very tight little band and having that the offbeat hut glurp Having the offbeat hi-hat
1: throughout. I wrote out the drum part. I played the drum parts as a demo and then showed what I wanted, and that's how we got that. And then played the guitar with no bass, the guitar and the drums, added a bass, added vocals. So that's the way it was built.
2: Did you play the bass on this one too? Just to, it sounds, okay. I
1: played everything on the record except for the drums on all but one song. One song I do play the drums on.
2: Let me uh, get us to the guitar solo again. Always the most interesting. So I'll play near the end of this, the extended second chorus. Yeah, so as I was talking about in terms of like that, you still have the guitars, lead guitars going, you know, under the solo. It sounds like you didn't strip anything away at all in adding this very busy solo. That's the
1: bass actually doing that line. Maybe the guitars covering the bass line too.
2: I think it's probably three things in parallel: the ba da da da. I think that the bass and it probably two guitars, or at least it sounds like parallel octaves there. Yeah, any, any thought about that solo in particular, though? It's a, you know, a very different style than the first one. You know, clean, more clean setting and much more articulated.
1: It's now written in stone. It's like some solos are always going to be half improvised. And you might have a beginning and a middle and an end, but you don't have the tendons that hold it together. But the glurp solo is fully formed. And uh, every time I try to play it in a different way, I'm just reminded that the the way it is on the record is the way it should be. That's actually kind of rare that an artist is satisfied with some anything.
2: Well, and it's funny that you know that you're talking about it as another voice, but of course you sing melodies, and you know. But it's very different. You know, I guess there are some very hyperactive vocalists that could do. Have melodies that move a lot, but your you know your melodies at least here are pretty rock and roll, going up and down between a few notes. As opposed to now, my real voice can come out. Everything that's in my head can go into your fingers, whereas into your voice is maybe a more difficult thing, or at least it would sound very weird if you tried to sing, <laughs> put a lot of words in and sing it sing sing a line like that.
1: People do that, or they just sing the notes. But I don't do too much of that. Not on this record, the two records we've mentioned so far.
2: I'm trying to even remember if on this one you have harmonies. Yeah, you do harmonize yourself on this one, right? I, are you always pretty much harmonizing yourself vocally? No, I think something. Okay, like I, on So Sad, it's by yourself for the whole thing, but then just for the end, it's so sad. It sounds like a choir of you comes in. Or was that just like whoever else was in the...
1: Other people who were at the studio got them to join in.
2: Sure. That's an easier way to get a gang vocal.
1: How loud or low their voices were depended on how far away from the microphone they would be. Mm-hmm. Getting a gang vocal. I could always sing the same parts, you know, so that they couldn't tell that it was overdubbed, a doubling of the vocal.
2: So, like, when you play this song where you played all the things in the studio yourself pretty much live well I assume it's not even the same drummer that you would be using now than you use for this recording or is it
1: no I can't yeah I got another guy
2: so are you kind of just leaving it to them as to how exact they want to follow the record or are you very much the the strict taskmaster that uh, oh it just doesn't sound right to me unless you do exactly that beat sometimes it's like that
1: I thought you wanted to know the drum beat is like that I didn't write it in nomenclature, but it's written out. And the same with Glurp and the same with all of the drum parts on the record are basically what I wrote and then showed the drummer. Because I could keep it up for like a minute or two, but I was out of shape and I couldn't keep it up for three minutes or whatever the length of the song was.
2: Let alone the the nine times you'd probably have to play it to get a good take. (laughs) You know, it's not. I record some of my own drums and it's not my primary instrument and I'm, Live. you know, I have to kind of devote the day to it and take a lot of breaks if I really want to. And that's live. What kind of kit do you have? It's a Pearl that I just picked up, used when I was in college and has just been in my basement. And occasionally drummers will leave cymbals, <laughs> and so they'll upgrade slower, you know, <laughs> yeah,
1: I have a set down in the basement. <laughs> My house is too small for the studio equipment I got gathered through the years. So it's all in storage.
2: Yeah, at this point, you know, when you make a new record or with this 2018 one, well, 2018, you made it clear you're, you know, going in and, you know, that you had a co producer and they sort of hooked you up with these people. Are you doing much home recording? Is that, a, is that even desirable? <laughs> no, not at the moment. I'm, I'm going out on the road in
1: September, the whole month. And there was some talk about going in October as well, but we moved that to March. But I'll be out for the whole month of September, mostly in the Northeast Uh, again, and Canada, perhaps. Anyway, they're working on Canada and the rest of the U.S. for later, like in the fall or something. So I'm looking forward to that. The timing of this is very good because it serves as a lead up to that tour.
2: CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio.
0: So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything.
2: From Field of Fire, 1985, you actually do write a little about this record in the book that you sort of had gone through the heroin period and the getting booted off Elektra, you know, after the first album came out. This is, you were, you know, feeling healthy and getting back into it. And I really like, so the version they're about to hear is the so-called revised version, which I assume is just a remix?
1: Often I was able to use some parts from the original recordings. But whatever wasn't up to snuff, we redid.
2: Okay. Well, this one, I mean, it's a slower speed and a lower pitch than the original, which just made me think that on the original, they turned the knob up. Uh
1: No, it's returned to E flat sometimes.
2: Okay. All right. I had Chris Stamey on the show recently. In his book, he talks about how, when I did this too, when I had a four track, where you could just, let's just make it sound a little, it just sounds a little draggy. Let's just pitch it up. And then you end up sounding like a chipmunk, as Chris was describing. Oh,
1: you don't go, can't go that far.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, this one gives a much clearer picture of the song, and I'll insert a clip from the original here. but especially what the original with its gobs of reverb in eighties production did with the acoustic guitar is sort of unforgivable. Like it swallows it up in a, in a weird way. Whereas this version, you know, everything is pristine. Do you have any thoughts about where you were at when you made this, the original record and writing this song?
1: Well, the original record came out and was a disaster in terms of it was an import and uh, they were trying to, get an American label interested in in my record, Field of Fire. And so they weren't importing to the U.S. So when I came over to do a tour supporting Field of Fire, you couldn't find it in record stores. And uh, the A&R person from the record company that was going to sign me asked for permission to work the record. And she worked the record and got a lot of airplay for my record but you couldn't buy it. And then I went out on the road and these were all like separate little events, each one diminishing the importance of the other. So it was a real failed enterprise. It didn't run like a good military campaign should. Anyway, that's the story there. You could get the one from Sweden, double imported, imported to England, then imported from England to the US. And it was like $26 ridiculous price
2: you, your appeal is just becoming more select it's not that you're
1: yeah, a, you it's the spinal tap quote <laughs> it's, not, it's just not true <laughs>
3: Too blind to bleed Take away the pain I'm bleeding Baby, take away the pain A dozen roses, that is all I've seen them come up and I watch them fall Like scattered pieces of a dream. A blue Heart in a foggy scheme, I'm pleading, baby, take away the pain. I'm pleading, baby, take away the pain. In the night, your love's a beacon the light that I've been seeking. So darling, don't forsake it. Take my heart and smash or break it. I'm free. Seeking, so darling, don't forsake it. Take this heart and smash or break it. I'm pleased.
2: So a little like so sad that you have this guitar thing that starts first. And in fact, it goes kind of twice as long as I would expect here, that you play that sort of twice all the way through before the band comes in, just so you could start singing immediately when the band comes in, as opposed to, I don't know, what I would expect of you play it once by yourself, and then the band comes in and plays instrumentally once, and maybe you could even have a little lead lick, and then you sing. Do you even remember? This is so long ago.
1: No, no. I'm sure it got done, satisfactorily.
2: Well, so, you, but you re-recorded this. I mean, do you recall if this is a... You at least re-sung it, right? It sounds like more recent you.
1: Yeah, I got a lot of complaints about the singing in the the original Field of Fire. Graveliness, that's not exactly necessary. But my voice was going through a rough period.
2: I mean, I guess it sounds, some of it sounds more like, not that you were trying to sound like Tom Verlaine, but just that it sounds like... More in the television family as opposed to what you do now, where it 's just like oh this is your this is your voice this is i don't know there's a little stank on it, a little Elvis thing or something in the originals
1: I don't know <laughs> Well, you know it's like television, in a way, I own all that stuff It's my band, and what Tom offered and what we did with it uh, is all very lovely and so there's absolutely no shame in doing the songs with a bit of a gruff attitude with tongue in cheek
2: sure i guess as opposed to your misty eyes where it's just a kind of the young sweet voice you know i guess (laughs) that comparatively it's kind of hard to sing in this take away the pain where you're kind of doing a little twirl in the to end each of the lines And it's hard to make it sound like it's ending on an actual note as opposed to just kind of... Is this one you still play live at this point?
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's on the set list tonight.
2: (laughs) It isn't. I remember in your book, you were talking about how in the first album that the producer just did some keyboard stuff without your permission. (laughs) There's no keyboards in this, but it is like the the last song, Mm -hmm. nicely layered that, you know, you got this acoustic that's emphasizing and then a second acoustic comes in at the end of the song to actually you know, play a strum throughout as opposed to sort of the Tom Petty thing where he even like, had his bass player switch to just playing strumma strumma acoustic guitar because he so wanted an acoustic guitar to be strumming through the whole song but that's not on here that you just it's sort of da 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 you know it's, it's just emphasizing the changes
3: I'm needing Baby take away a dozen that is all seen
2: come up and thought about your how you're building the layers here on this song
1: yeah, good thinking and that's what a producer does it's one of the things they do is they shape the sonic structure of the song the uh layout the body of the song
2: i thought you had an an external producer on this one was that were you saying that those were not your decisions or that
1: on the countdown
2: on field of fire
1: no no external producer there was an engineer and a producer who quit that's right basically it was me and peter engen and the band that i had that was the original mixes the guy was good. But he took fucking forever to mix a single song, which is like not how I perceive arriving at real greatness. It should be, uh, well, there should be some rough edges, for goodness sakes.
2: Well, let me see if I can uh, insert from the original version. Is it the bridge in The Night Your Love's a Beacon? Because it seems like the pleading is the chorus, even though it's exactly the same. It gets very reverby. That's just the 80s, and that's what the 80s sound like? Or was there a thought? Is this the redo or the original? That was the original. So, yes, where, where the-, the reverb nut just
1: put things awash in reverb. Sometimes it works. Mostly it didn't. I would have liked to have had a. I don't know of any major record recording artists that are, like, totally satisfied with their own work.
2: Well, especially their own work that came out in 1985. I think that is a, an exceptional period that requires a remix. Probably it was very smart to actually make it. In fact, in your uh, expanded edition that you put all the remakes after the original tracks. I mean, I guess that's a nod to the people who, you know, were fans of the original album, but it was sort of only an accident that I even got that far because I had listened to the whole original album and like, why would I want to listen to the, the same songs again? Oh, wait a second. This actually clears up any issue that I might have had with the original Uh mix. Yeah, so again, we have a guitar solo that's over. Let me hear me. I'll go back to the the newer version here. I think this is in the previous solo. You switched to slide at some point, and so you're just keeping that here. You're sliding your finger around. Do you ever play with a with an actual slide, or is that just like seem like a different instrument?
1: Parts of it are different, but I've recorded with it and I don't think anything's ever come out with the alternate tunings that I'd like to use for slide.
2: Sure. A little more restrictive. You can you can slide around on multiple notes if you're just using your fingers and actually still play chord shapes or whatever and not have to have an open tuning or what you know, whatever the uh The restrictions there are like, is this a song that you would write now in terms of the the style? Do you feel like that could be something that could appear on the new album or have you just moved into this, as I was characterizing before, a more bluesy direction or something? And so having something that's sort of this regimented is maybe not in the cards anymore.
1: No, I have a number of songs that operate like that not all of them have seen the light of day, but there's a certain aspect to my playing that invites that
2: kind of suggestion. I don't think in writing the book you mentioned, right, because you were writing it before you actually recorded The Countdown, but you mentioned in the book doing Radiant Monkey and that being, you know, how you did that right after you left television for the last time, I believe, and how you excited you are. And it seems like, you know, especially the opening track of that Radiant Monkey album is very much an opening up monkeys, the song, you know, opening up in a more uh, a Jimi Hendrix sort of manner Mm -hmm. that was not in television would not work if it's one guy doing little precise things and the other guy is Jimi Hendrix. Like, you did some crazy stuff during television, but it seemed like there were some limits? I don't know. Maybe I I
1: learned a lot from Jimmy, but one of the things that I learned was not to show your influences.
2: (laughs) Okay. Yes, I didn't think immediately you're doing a Neil Young solo in that other song. So it was disguised to that extent. Things are cloaked. Mm -hmm. Let's go all the way back to the first solo album, Misty Eyes, that your your biggest hit. Although, you know, you have some stories about how, well, it was a, a regional hit that then they sort of pulled the plug on. Anyway, it's a very nice song. Any thoughts before folks hear this one?
1: No, it speaks for itself. It really does. It's a very sentimental song about a young boy and a young girl who Feel as though they're destined to be together, but then they're not. They're separated. So their meeting again is very poignant.
2: Kind of a relatively high, pretty voice compared to the other stuff we've talked about. Some nice little finger picking, which did you get to do much finger picking with television? Or was there something that, oh, that's not cool A New Wave?
1: I pick as if it were finger picking, but I use a plectrum to do that.
2: Sure. Okay. So you can just play quickly enough that you don't have to actually.
1: I use the second finger clawback sometimes, but not usually. Usually just a, a pick.
2: Well, I was surprised that that Electra gave you, gave television an eight-album deal, which clearly didn't happen. I think that's what you said in the book. It's such that then both you and Tom were treated as if, by Electra, as if you were doing the next television album in terms of getting the full budget, at least initially the support that 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 television album would have gotten had it existed.
1: When Tom and I, as it were, doubled down, we each got the next amount of Support that we would have gotten if we had just made a television record. So we actually got twice as much money, but it went to Tom and it went to me. And uh, that's where Tom's record and my record on Electra came out.
2: It seemed like, uh, apart from the sneaky keyboard stuff that you refer to in the book that was recorded kind of with the studio locked, that you seemed unhappy with.
1: Alchemy, my record, the so called producer would go in the morning and lock himself in the studio and mess with things and wasn't very happy.
2: sounds like you have not had a situation where you've let a producer have final control over anything, you know, that you get producers to help you.
1: Real Time was a live record that Steve Katz of Blood, Sweat and Tears produced. And that still sells somewhat. And I let go of that pretty well. There's a live recording done at CBGB's with a couple of new songs embedded in it, so it wouldn't be stale to me. But yeah, records are forever.
2: Yeah, I guess, I mean, a live album is almost a separate category that, you know, it's a document, it's hopefully captures something that's a little tighter and more spontaneous, but, you know, as long as it has a nice sound.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's just as good as a record that is released. You get those terrific performance, the sound is good, the audience is good, the shape of the room benefits the music, and uh, it's all very nice. We have a couple of those in the can.
2: Well, yeah, and there's plenty of records. Yeah, anything recorded in the 70s and 80s, I always wish, like, can you just get the same people together and get them you a know, do a really good live set and record that with today's technology? Because it's often a shame that... You think oh this is the sound of the band but no that's just the sound of how things were recorded then you know with the drums sounding kind of crappy and <laughs> the whole thing being a little flat depending on whether they're talking 70s or 80s
1: well, nobody wants to make a bad sounding record. It's just that some people don't literally have ears that have conflicts in them themselves. You know, someone won't know that you can't have five instruments all in uh, 2500 hertz turn to mush or rotten high end, you know, bleeding into everything. You have to be very careful about the sonics of making records. And if you can do that, your chances of making a good record or a great record is strengthened immeasurably
2: yeah at this point so i know you you know you're producing yourself are you mixing and mastering yourself or are you sending it off somewhere else to the experts that you can pay by the song and then just complain if you don't like it make them redo it
1: last thing i did i did the same person who did the mixing had mastering stuff and he mastered it. It came out fine.
2: Sure. I mean, even that's, I guess, getting better. I haven't actually tried AI mastering, but apparently you can kind of give it a sound profile, which is what I do, what I was taught to do manually is play, play a record that you like how it sounds and then just EQ yours to try to match that. This Misty Eyes sound like it could have been that hit. I mean, it sounds like more like the cars than like television in terms of just the...
1: Should have redone it. I was asked if I wanted to re-cut the record in Better Studio. This is early on, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. A&M were very interested in having me, and we did an audition, a live audition with them in L.A., I believe, and they came up afterwards, the president and the uh, vice president and all the big wigs. And shook my hand and said, well, welcome to A&M, Mr. Lloyd. Uh, there's a few things we have to clear up, but you can tell anyone that you're an A&M artist. And I'm looking forward to hearing the music that uh, you produce. And then I had a really unfortunate, chemically, psychochemically imbalanced relationship with the guy who was taking care of me, Matt, the manager. Who was doing things I didn't approve of and he went to the record company and said I'm doing everything I can to get this record done and he's not helping and I spoke to them and said this record is getting ruined by the producer who's locking himself into a room and doing all sorts of alien sounds and bullshit that doesn't have anything to do with the music and I don't want to make a science fiction record so Theirs was, well, take a couple of weeks off and then get back and see if you two guys can work together. If not, you can get somebody else to finish the record, but it's you're going to have to pay for it. And then they fucked up the cover that was supposed to be color in color, that photographs in color. And the alchemy shirt came out in black and white. And I was told, well... 10,000 of them were printed, I'm sorry, but if you want it to be colored, you're going to have to take your album out of rotation for release. And who knows if it'll get released, but it'll take like six months to straighten this one a bit out. and We don't know if we'll be interested by then. So what do you want to do? At every turn, I got hamstrung by them. And they were just setting out their take on things, you know, like we have deadlines and we have records coming out months in advance. We have to know what they are.
2: And it was hard. Well, always interesting hearing these stories of the now basically extinct label system. In between some of these albums we've been talking about, the last two, you released the Jamie Nevert story, which is all Jimi Hendrix covers, uh, which you explain in your book that this was the pseudonym that you and your friend gave to. Hendrix, so you could talk about how your friend was taking guitar lessons from him without, without telling people who are, who are listening in. May this be love? Seems like not only is it a very underrated Jimi Hendrix song, but it seems like the one that you're trying least to sound like Jimi Hendrix in terms of your voice. I don't know. This, is, this sounds like the most Richard esque of them. Any thoughts before people hear this? Or, or you, do you want to just say a little more about this project? Why a whole album? Of Jimmy Hendricks covers. whole album of Hendricks covers. So, and not the most famous ones. Purple Haze, but not any of the other, not Foxy Lady. No, late,
1: you know. not the
2: Guitar Hero ones.
1: I mean, he simply was a guitar god, a god hero. And there's no need to play the same old guitar licks that have become famous. So it's mostly from the first two records. And it's short songs. Chas really did a great job of editing them, because Jimmy would write like 12 verses, 18 verses, and, and Chas would say, no, you've got to come down to three verses, <laughs> you know, so let's work on it. And it all turned out well.
2: Yeah, very fun to revisit the Hendrix canon in this way, and this song in particular, May This Be Love. Thanks so much for chatting with me. I thank you. Thanks so much to Richard, amazing guitarist and very interesting mind. I encourage you to sample at least the audiobook or the regular version of his memoir, Everything is Combustible. You'll see right from the first page, this is not a man who thinks like ordinary people. And he gives a lot of details about how his career intersected with that of Keith Richards, Jimi Hendrix, various other famous people. And there are a lot of salacious... Stories that I didn't want to get into for my format. So it's a good time. You can also find more about his music at richardloyd.com. My next episode will be with Andy White, an Irish Dylan-esque singer-songwriter living in Australia. He's done some collaborations with Tim Finn from Split Ends and Crowded House and many solo albums. In fact, he has a podcast you could go look up right now called This Podcast is Only Temporary. I'm excited that I've gotten to do some playing music with other people recently connected with a new drummer with my old bassist auditioning some lead guitarists pulling out and revisiting finalizing the chords and structures for some songs i've written over the past couple of years so too early to say if it'll really go anywhere but it's so good to be in a room with people making loud noises i hope you are doing well that you are being creative in the ways you want to be keep on music in until next time this is mark linton meyer signing off